Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Apprehending God by Pastor Sean Wood. Let's pray and then we'll come around God's Word. Father, I thank you this morning that just as the rain falls, says Isaiah, and just as the snow falls and doesn't return to you, neither does your Word, Lord. And I pray right now that your Word would soak and saturate our hearts just as the rain does and just as the snow does, Lord. May our ears be open and our eyes be open and our hearts be receptive to hear from you this morning. In your wonderful name we ask. Amen. If you'd like to meet me in Mark chapter 9, I would like to speak this morning just basically uh, parts of what I'll speak about this morning I shared uh, a few Sunday nights ago um, and believe that it is where my heart lies for us as a church moving forward and a little bit of um, what happened at the conference. But uh, I'd like to share from Mark chapter 9. When we get to Mark chapter 9, there's some elephants in the room that we need to address. It's a, it's a fantastic passage, but it, there's some questions that are raised as we make our way through. But uh, I was deeply challenged recently when uh, I was reading one of A.W. Tozer's books, called A Knowledge of the Holy. And right at the beginning of the book, he starts off with a quote that says, true religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear on time. It's one of those passages you read and then when you get further down the page, you go back and go, hang on a second, what did he just say? And I'll read it out again. It says, true religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear on time. And true religion, true Christianity is about bringing all of the reality of the other world, which is heaven, to bear on this world right now. It's about confronting the hearts of men with eternity right now. Men, women, children, of course, under that bracket. But it's about confronting the earth as we know it now and the people in our community and impacting them with the gospel and the reality of heaven. And I am encouraged as I move around circles that uh, this is widely accepted now, That, but we have an enormous challenge before us. And that is to impact our community with the reality of God. We should not, we are living in very thirsty times. I think I was sharing that with Kerry this morning. We are living in times when people are deeply thirsty for spiritual things. And it's, it means a lot of stuff for people. They're, they're chasing, trying to fill a void in their hearts. And the challenge for the church is people should be able to fully drink of the fullness of the reality of God whenever we are together. Like, and you should be able to on Mondays and Tuesdays as well. A.W. Tozer would call this apprehending God. And apprehending or apprehension, but to apprehend someone or apprehending is to arrest or to lay hold of something. And A.W. Tozer says that we need to lay hold of God. And I want to share with you this morning that that's exactly what my heart is for this church, that we all as individuals as well as a community, I'm I'm not concerned about what any other church is doing right now. I'm concerned about what's going on inside of these walls and we as individuals as well as a community actually laying hold and experiencing the reality of God. And as we move through the word today, I would like to say that the one thing that is stopping us from doing that, the one thing that is hindering us from experiencing more of the fullness of God is our chronic unbelief. And if we are seriously going to impact the community around us, we can no longer do things the way we've always done them. 
that will be highlighted in today's passage as well. What do I mean by that? Quite often, uh, quite often the temptation is that we will just throw more programs. We will just institute better budgets. We will just make better plans. We will just form a better team. We will just build better organisations. We'll find better leaders. And we can do all of that and we should do all of that. But there is one strategy, I believe, that is missing from the church. It is the one strategy that we, as a body of believers, moving forward, will grab hold of. If point A is where we are now and point B is experiencing more of the fullness of God, that's where we want to be. And I want to unpack today exactly how it is that we get there and what our strategy moving forward would be. I was deeply encouraged at the conference because uh, what was highlighted, and if, you li- if you're able to listen to tonight's message, you'll understand that what is highlighted is uh, a lot of what we've been talking about for the last two, two and a half years that I've been here is exactly where God has got not only us, but a lot of churches. You see, uh, tonight's message is about the fact that the church is an orchard and not a factory. And all too often, we try to treat church as a factory. We're trying to build an, an organisation. We, we just need better CEOs behind the pulpit, when in actual fact, we need more pastors behind the pulpit and less CEOs. It's a huge challenge, but we can't keep doing things the way we've always done them. And growth happens supernaturally, but it happens because of an atmosphere. And I believe that if there is one thing that we are responsible for in our own personal lives, as well as inside of church buildings, it's the atmosphere. You know the story in Mark about the farmer that goes out and sows the seed and it grows and he knows not how. Because he's got no control over it. I've said to other people before, and I'll say it from the pulpit right now, you give me 100 people on fire for God rather than 500 people that are just nominal and half-hearted. 120 people on fire for God turned Asia Minor upside down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were the 120 people in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And as we're going to see, I'm not going to do it, so don't, don't sharpen the pitchforks yet. But if I could, I would take a word out of the Bible. There's a, Bible, there's, there's a word in today's passage that I, want to take, that I, would, that I would like to take out. But I'm, I'm so thankful and I praise God that it's there. But I would like to remove that word from our vocabulary moving forward. Sharpen the pitchforks later, if you please. Moving on to Mark chapter 9. We see the story of Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been up on the mountain and uh, uh, he takes three of his disciples with him, uh, which was quite customary. It's Peter, John, and of course, uh, his brother James. They go up on the mountain and uh, this is a moment that absolutely revolutionises Peter's life. We read it in his epistles that he was on the holy mountain because the Jesus we saw, the Jesus we had tea with, the Jesus we walked this earth with was a completely different Jesus we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Completely different. In fact, a Greek word is used only twice in the New Testament. It's called metamorpho where it's a complete metamorphosis. It's like caterpillar and butterfly. That's the only description I can give you of what happened on top of that mountain. And as they're coming down the mountain, a crowd has gathered and something is going on. 
Some of us may be familiar with this story, but and when they came to the disciples, verse 14, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And who are these scribes? The scribes of Jesus' time were those that interpreted the scripture. It's important to note that as we move through this. Uh, the scribes were the guys that would take the Bible and, uh, and give you the application. They were the guys you went to if you had questions concerning the scriptures and the prophecies. These were the guys that would unpack it for you. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And uh, as I have said before, and I will say it again, whenever God asks us a question, he is not looking for information. The example in Genesis chapter 3, when God comes down to the garden and says, Adam, where are you? It wasn't like he'd lost him. God knew exactly where Adam was. God wanted Adam to know where Adam was. Why are you hiding from me? What's changed, Adam? Now Jesus asks the crowd, not because he needs the information, he says, what are you arguing about? What's going on? And there's an argument between the disciples and there's an argument that has began between the scribes. And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. It's interesting. Some people stop at this point and go, well, neither should they have been able to. But we're talking about the same disciples that Jesus has previously sent out. We're talking about the same disciples that have been commissioned by Christ to heal the sick. He sent 70 of them out to go throughout the towns and the villages. They laid their hands on sick people and they were made well. They laid their hands on those who were possessed by just exactly the same as this boy. But this time they were unable. And immediately an argument ensues because the scribes think they have all the answers. (laughs) And the disciples think that the way they've always done it is the way that we should be doing it. And we're actually going to see that both of them are wrong. And... All too often, we spend too much time in crowds talking about a problem amongst ourselves, except doing what we should do, what Jesus asks every one of us to do, which is what he commands to happen next. This is what they should have done first. I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. When you don't have the answers, where are you going to go? And Jesus rebukes them and says to them, O faithless generation. And the word faithless there is speaking about a lack of trust and a lack of reliance. You see, what Jesus is going to begin to challenge inside of everybody that's standing there, including the Father of the Son, is where is your dependence and where is your reliance? And I believe the greatest challenge that is being rested on the people of God right now today is where is your dependence and where is your reliance? 
Yeah, sure, you can, we can have all the flashy programs and we can, we can set up all these flashy things. We can, we can fill places with smoke mirrors and lights and all these kinds of flashy things. But who are you really depending on? That's the challenge that Jesus is beginning to bring. Bring him to me. Let's read on. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. Isn't it interesting that the presence of Christ makes an enormous difference in this situation? (laughs) Brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, this is an enormously important question that we need to grab hold of as we move forward. It is, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus knows the answer to this question. How long has this been happening? But listen to the hopelessness. Listen to the hopelessness in in the words of the father. And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. The circumstances surrounding everything that's going on here, listen to the words here. This is a hopeless situation. I have no doubt that the father has consulted the scribes many times. I'm sure he's gone to the Pharisees. I'm sure he's gone to every guru in the place to try and find an answer for what's going on with his boy. But there's only one person really that's got the answer. And if we're going to impact deeply, authentically impact our community for Christ, we don't have the answers. But Jesus does. And just like this boy, what makes the difference is the presence of Christ. How long has this been happening? This has been happening from childhood. This isn't a five-minute thing. This isn't, this isn't something that's been going on for a couple of weeks. This is something that's deep. This is something that's ingrained. This is something, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, as he's exposing the scripture, he says, this is, this is right down in deep. We live in times, I talk to people on a weekly basis outside of these walls who have no hope. Every single day, six men take their own lives and 82 others will try in Australia. When I, and I've said this many times before, when I, when I was a cleaner at the Launceston General Hospital, there was uh, two rooms on the children's ward that were separated for adolescents who had tried to take their life. It is sad that we separate two rooms for that. It is more deeply sad when they were never empty. Something is wrong when kids get to that point. Something is wrong when anybody gets to that point. This man here has got no hope apart from Christ This community has no hope apart from Christ. Let's read on because Jesus has something left to challenge us with. And he said from childhood, it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But two very enormously powerful words in scripture. First one is but. Some of the buts are glorious buts. Other buts are ones you don't want to know about. 
The other very, very powerful word in Scripture, depending on how we use it, is the word if. Let me read this sentence to you twice, and I'm going to take one word out and have a listen to how different the sentence is. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I'm going to read it again. But you can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. There is no way I would ever entertain taking the word if out, but if I could. And I can't take the word if out of that sentence, and I don't want to. I praise God that it's there. But I do want to take the word if out of our own vocabulary. All too often, what holds us back is we all too often use the word if. What we're going to find with this father is something that's quite common with all of us. You know, it's easy to believe God for miracles for other people. (laughs) That's easy. We can believe that God will do that for you. I'll pray for you. I can believe that for you. But when it becomes personal... Can you believe today that not only is Jesus the saviour of the world, but Jesus is your saviour? Can you believe, Ken, because I can, could you believe that Ken would, that, he would, that Jesus would step down onto this earth just for you? Because he did. Can this father believe that this miracle-working son of God can heal his son? He uses the words, if you can. And all too often in church, we use the words, if you can. We read all the books. I've read the books. I've read the books about Brownsville in Pensacola and the great move of God. I've read the books about Azusa. I'm Azusa out. I've read the books about Azusa Street. I've read the books about Brownsville in Pensacola. I've heard about the great awakenings in the time of Jonathan Edwards and the Wesley brothers. But who says God can't do that now? And why should we expect anything less? Why should we settle for a Christianity minus experiencing and tasting God? You shouldn't have to settle for that at all. A.W. Tozer, if you have not read the book, The Pursuit of God, I encourage you to read it. But as A.W. Tozer said, we should be able to lay hold of God, apprehending God. But the same thing that is holding the Father back here is the same thing that holds us back. We are too commonly using the words, if you can. There are two dangers I see in the church today. And as we move into explaining what faith is, to quote Andrew Corbett, we're probably going to sacrifice a few sacred cows along the way. But there are two dangers I see in the church today. The first one is conservatism. You see, we use the word conservative really as another word sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes for safe and comfortable. Well, we're a conservative church. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that can mean we have constructed a framework where church is comfortable. We turn up at 9.30, we leave at 11, and once it gets to 11.05, you're preaching to yourself, Pastor. Thank you, Harold. Security will deal with you directly. So on the one end of the scale, we have conservatism and 
Jesus never started a conservative movement. Read the book of Acts. None of these guys were conservative. But on the other hand, we can, to use a Christian term, Christianese term, sometimes we swing far too much from the rafters. And we hide behind phrases like, we're drunk in the spirit. And I can hear the mooing now. I believe there is a happy medium where we can actually tangibly experience and know God at deeper levels. But we don't have to hide in comfort zones and we don't have to be trapeze artists. But we can know God. God is more than goosebumps on a Sunday. And we have, as a church, I feel, not this one individually, but universally, I believe that we have been too Sunday-focused. We've been all about what happens here on a Sunday morning. We pour all of our resources into an hour and a half on a Sunday. What happens on Monday? You know, people don't often face too many crises on Sundays. It's all Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays. If you can, and Jesus goes on and says, And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And that word believe is a verb and it speaks about casting the fullest of our trust and confidence in. If you'd like to meet me in Hebrews chapter 11 briefly, I'm going to tell you this morning that faith is absolutely the vehicle to get whatever it is you want. Before you sharpen the pitchforks, I saw that smile, Terry. Faith is absolutely the vehicle to lay hold of whatever it is you want. But by the time we finish in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to question what it is you want or who it is you want. What is faith? Let's have a look at what the writer to Hebrews says. He says, now faith... I'll read the first few verses to begin with. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. For by, the, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. That's important to note. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. I wonder if we fully understood that, would it not revolutionize our lives? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, Apprehending God requires faith. Laying hold of God requires faith. C.H. Spurgeon would say that faith is the hand of the soul. Faith is like the hand of our hearts and our souls that reaches out and lays hold of all that God is. You see, it's interesting that really at the end of the day, when we are living fully by faith, it's interesting how what you want changes. All of a sudden, the house you live in, the amount of money you earn, the car you drive, the horse you ride, the shoes you wear, the clothes you wear, your postcode, none of those things seem to matter anymore. It's kind of like Moses in the promised land. God says to Moses in Exodus 33, he says, you know what? 
I can't go into the promised land with you guys because I'm going to wipe you all out. So he says to Moses, he says, I'm going to give you everything you want. I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to let you conquer everything. You can have the promised land. You can have your own cities. Everything that I told you you can have, you can have it, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, if you don't go with us, don't even bother taking us because we don't actually want the promised land. Well, they did, but Moses didn't. Moses said, I don't actually want the promised land. I want you. And Moses said, if I have the fullness of you and I'm still in the wilderness, happy days. Faith is about laying hold of the fullness of God. Let's have a look at a few key words here that that may help us to try and define. We're going to find the best definition for faith in a moment. Firstly, the word faith here in the Greek is different to the word believe. It is a firm persuasion or conviction based upon hearing. So it is a firm persuasion with inside of us, a firm conviction inside of us that is based on hearing. And can I tell you, there is a difference between listening and hearing. Faith, says Romans 10, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I could recite the Bible to you over and over and over and over and over and faith will not increase unless the Bible or the word of God goes from here to here. That's hearing when it becomes God's word to you. Faith is the conviction The assurance of things and the conviction. The conviction is a firm belief. Both assurance and conviction mean similar things. It's it's about where our confidence is and it's about a, a firm belief or opinion that we have. And by it we understand that the universe was created by the word of God and the word understand means to perceive with the mind. But have you ever noticed that not only these three verses give it the best crack, but have you ever noticed that faith is difficult to, to actually define? Faith, the easiest way to sum up faith, faith is man's response to what God has said. What do I mean by that? Let's take one example from the Gospels. Uh, Jesus sends the, sends the disciples out on the water. Then he comes out walking to them on the water. And the boat is full of all of the disciples. But Jesus says to one of them, Get out of the boat. He says, come. Peter says, if it's you, let me come out of the boat and walk to you on the water. And Jesus says to him, come. And upon the word of God, Peter acts. And he walks on the water. Faith is man's response to what God has said. Faith is not pie in the sky or blind, wishful thinking. Faith is founded on reason and it's always in response to God's word. Faith has a firm foundation. But its definition is difficult to, to, to say in words. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like love, isn't it? I was, I was talking to Josh and Steve about this this morning, but uh, if, if I want to tell you or try and define or describe what love is, I'm going to take an example. Uh, love is this, 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 and this, and then I'm going to point to examples. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 11. He says, faith is this, 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 and this. He says, and now we're going to have a look at its expression. Because the fullest definition is found in expression. Let's have a look at one example this morning. One of my, my favourite Old Testament characters is a guy by the name of Noah. 
Verse 6 of chapter 11 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw... Anybody here want to draw near to God? For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. That's a full confidence and trust. And that He will reward those who seek Him. It is actually a promise to you as an individual that God will reward you for seeking Him. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed, underline the word constructed, very important to what I'll say next, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Do you notice when the word of God comes to Noah, Noah didn't speak the ark into existence? He picked up a hammer and nails and a saw and he constructed an ark. There is only one person in Scripture, there is only one person in the entire universe that there is any evidence that their words actually create something, and that's God. So unless you're him, and the stark evidence that you're possibly not, unless you're him, faith is not us speaking anything into existence, faith is us laying hold of what is already there. What God has already promised us, you may lay hold of. Faith looks like, says James, entire epistle almost, devoted to the fact that faith is able to be seen in your life. Faith looks like picking up the hammer and the nails. And the writer of the Hebrew says, the greatest expression and the greatest definition of faith we find in the expression of the lives of people like Noah. And what Noah did and what everybody else in Hebrews 11 did was they reached hold of another world and brought that to bear on his world. We have to choose our world. Each and every one of us have to make a choice about which world it is that will govern us. I experience this physical world with my eyes and with my hands and I can taste and I can feel and I can smell. From anywhere near my boys, the smell is not pleasant. <laughs> and just as I experience everything around me by those senses, faith is the sense by which we experience the fullness of God. Faith is abandoning this world as your governance and accepting the next. Uh, we always speak about the promises of God being in eternity when God has said they're for now. You can experience the fullness of God right now. And Noah builds an ark and it says that by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. In other words, uh, in Second Peter, it calls him a herald or a preacher of righteousness. And what he is doing to everybody around him is he is saying, I am bringing the fullness of the reality of God to bear on you. He's acting on God's word. Do you know that Noah built a boat in the middle of nowhere? He wasn't on the coast. He builds a boat in the middle of nowhere in a generation of people that didn't really know what rain was, let alone floods. And he's telling everybody, I'm building a boat because a flood's coming and everything's going to be wiped out. And many thousands of years later, uh, God says, "I've, I've kind of built a different ark. Judgment's still going to come, and if you want to escape judgment, you have to come into Christ. 
And by this, he brought the fullness of the reality of God to bear on his generation. Yes, they sneered at him. Yes, they mocked him. Yes, they reviled him. Yes, he wore the reproach of God, but he didn't care. And we need to make a choice because getting closer to God is not about how much you read the word and pray. Duck the tomatoes. It's not about how much you read the word and pray. You see, all of that is just a natural fruit of, of something that happens in our lives as an undergirding truth. And that truth is when God is exalted in our hearts above everything else. Because that's what happened to Noah. He built an ark in reverent fear. Reverent fear looks like I place God at the top of my list. You want to know what revival is? You, revival in scripture and revival has always meant one thing. It is when God is returned to his rightful place. And look what will happen when he is. Everything that God works in is missional. It's supposed to flow out. Otherwise, we become stagnant. There is a world waiting for the reality of Christ, and God is waiting for us. A.W. Tozer says, God is waiting for us to want him, and all too often, he waits too long. Let's not keep God waiting anymore, I say. I say, let's lay hold of God. Let's, let's, when God is at the highest place in our hearts, you will read the word, and you will pray. When God is at the highest place in your hearts, church is more than Sundays. It's about Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, whatever it is. When God is number one in our hearts, we as both individuals in a church will, will adopt a completely different strategy. Back to Mark chapter 9. The father prays cries out to Jesus, and this is a beautiful prayer, by the way. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I find myself praying this all too often. God, you've got to help me with my unbelief, because if there was no unbelief in me, things would look different. If we're honest. But there's an elephant in the room that I want to touch on before we finish out tonight. I'll read down to the end. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never end him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. The disciples are like, hang on a second, there's an elephant here, and it's getting bigger every time. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And other translations will read, but by prayer and fasting. What does Jesus mean by that? And it all goes back to the question of how long has this been happening? Why? Jesus is saying to his disciples, this, this is deep. This, this is deep. It's ingrained. It's right down in there. And your normal methods and your normal strategies aren't going to work. And I believe God is telling us as a church, your normal way of doing things, your normal way of leaning on all of your own abilities, it's not going to work anymore. This 
only comes out by prayer and fasting. And prayer and fasting are only a vehicle, not the means. This is not a formula. We've got to get out of the mass room. If you want to experience God, you've got to get out of the mass room and put the calculator down. This is a vehicle for us depending on God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is coming to God saying, I depend on you. As we work towards a close this morning, I'd like to share with you, on the basis of this, I'd like to share with you my life verse. My life verse is Proverbs 21, 31. You can look it up later on, but it says, the horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And uh, when I was at the conference, uh, I was talking to some friends that were at the conference and they were saying, you know, it seems like there's two conflicting messages. One on, on the one hand is all about faith and the other on the other hand is all about strategy and there seems to be this tension and this conflict. Can I tell you that it was never designed for there to be any conflict between either of those? In fact, there is only conflict when you remove one of those. So if you think you were going to accomplish anything by all of your own plans and all of your own strategy, you are like a plane taking off without any fuel in the tank. You're going to crash and burn. There's only so long you'll stay up in the air. But if you think you don't have to strategize and the Holy Spirit's just going to do everything, you also are going to crash and burn. And God never designed for there to be any tension. God designed for there to be a, a unity between the both. And what this verse is saying is we do everything we know to do. Board members prepare a budget. Board members plan. Board members, uh, whatever it is, we need to count heads in here so we can plan for the amount of people that come. But that's not a sign of anything more than God's grace. We have measured success in churches by the wrong means for far too long. For far too long, it has been successful if your church is in the thousands. There are pastors pastoring churches of 50 that are doing an enormously profound work in their communities. Praise God. The minutes you get pastors together, the first question anybody asks each other is, how many people are in your church? Depends on what Sunday you come. What we should be asking each other is, is God in your church? I'm sure there's churches God doesn't attend. What Proverbs is telling us is this. Yes, you must plan. Yes, you must have strategy. Yes, there are logistical matters you must attend to. But you, at the end of the day, will absolutely achieve nothing unless it is all by the power of God. That's the victory of God. And unless we as a church adopt the strategy of prayer, we will achieve nothing. Point A is here, point B is there. How do we move from point A to point B? We get on our knees and we pray. We get on our knees and we say, God, we've done everything we know to do. We've done everything we think is right. And we're going to make mistakes and we're going to fall over and we're going to stumble and we're going to, we're going to make wrong decisions at times. That's okay. But we know this. We will get the victory on our knees. We should not... It, the habit is, let's have a 
let's have, a, let's have an hour and a half meeting where we pray for five minutes. That needs to change. Everything we do and every step we take must be soaked in prayer from this point forward. A.W. Tozer, I'll read out a quote to you. He says, to most people, and I pray that this is not the case for anybody inside of these walls, to most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He is a deduction from evidence, which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. There are far too many people, I feel, that agree that God must exist, but their lives don't reflect it. They don't know him. People who are non-believers, I can ask them, do you think God exists? Yeah, it makes sense that God exists. That should change who we are. Christianity must be so much more than Sundays. And I no longer desire for God to be a deduction from evidence, but to be a community of people living in vibrant, dynamic connection with God. This is about who Jesus is to us. It is about the place that he occupies in our hearts. I desire to remove all hard attitudes that in any way incline towards the words, if you can. Let's take the word if out. God, you can be known. God, you can be experienced. God, you can impact this community. I no longer desire to be a disciple who prays, but I would rather be a prayer who is a disciple. I no longer desire to limp through a spiritual life dying of thirst. Too many of us sit at the banqueting table starving. I no longer desire to, uh, for any to attend church and sit at the banqueting table and leave starving. But here's the truth. I can't force feed anybody. I want to ask everybody in this room a question this morning. We have to do things differently. All of our dependence and all of our reliance has to be upon God. But I want to ask everybody a question. Will you join me in moving forward and apprehending God? Let's pray. Father, I ask that your word would soak into our hearts and I ask that none of us, most importantly and most assuredly the one behind the pulpit, would not leave here unchallenged. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us today, but I pray that you would challenge us tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. And I pray that you would challenge us next year and the year after. Lord, I pray that we would be discontent spiritually, Lord God, pursuing you, hungry for you and hungry for you alone, I pray. Lord God, I ask that just as Elijah prepared the altar on Mount Carmel, he set the timber, he dug the trench, he did everything. Lord God, I pray that just as what happened on Mount Carmel will happen right here and that fire will fall from heaven. Lord God, we need your fire in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you can be apprehended and known by each one of us. Lead us, guide us, we ask in your wonderful name.
Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.